Well, good morning and welcome here. It's uh, good to have you here this morning. It's a beautiful day out, a little bit cool, but beautiful day. And my name is Luke. I get to serve as the pastor here, and, and it's good to have you here. Uh, today is fun. Today we're starting on our series on Song of Solomon. Last week we did just kind of a, a big overview, kind of kind of big picture concepts. And uh, this week we're going to go after the, the first section. We're going to kind of go through it section by section. And so today we're going to look at, at uh, Song of Solomon and, and his bride and, and their attraction to one another. And then as we go throughout the book, we'll see them become attracted to each other. We'll see them enter into a more serious dating relationship. Uh, we'll see them get married. Uh, we'll see a little bit about their honeymoon. We'll see them have some fights and arguments and work through conflict. And we'll see them uh, continue on in, in just a very committed relationship. Uh, now, last time I warned you that there is at least one Sunday that, that might get a, a little bit steamy in here. Maybe we won't have to run the heating unit. And, uh, and I had originally told you that that was going to be February 14th. I've actually, I, I did my math wrong. It's actually going to be January 31st. And um, I, I tell you that just because, you know, I'm wanting to be honest and candid about what's in the book and what it says and what it means. Uh, but yet at the same time, keep it classy. Um, but I also recognize that we have some younger ears here. And um, so we're going to have, uh, on January 31, there's also, during the service, there'll be a kid's time in the basement, and they're going to be serving waffles. So, like, I figure either way it's a win-win, right? Up here is a win, or downstairs you get waffles. So, um, January 31, there will be a, uh, a waffle time in the basement. Um, this last Friday and Saturday, your leadership team uh, went away to a, a kind of a... I guess retreat's the right word. I'm not sure that's the right word. Um, to, a, to really to a monastery near Schuyler, Nebraska. Fantastic location. I'd love to send as many of you there uh, as I possibly could get there. We just spent some time kind of prayerfully considering, you know, what is the purpose of the global church? And within that, what is our purpose as Henderson Mennonite Brethren Church? What's our vision and direction? And uh, nothing was finalized, but we had some really good discussion. And, and for... For events like that, I, I normally have two rules, feed them well and work them hard. And so we ate well, and we had a lot of meetings. But we'll, I'll give you a little bit more update on that next week. But, uh, but it was a good time on Friday and Saturday. And just as a heads up, I'm going to be gone for a few days this week. Um, Mark and Jane Dost and I are going to connect with Jason and Nicole Queering out in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I'll be gone for a couple days for that. And then I, I have a, a meeting with a mentor of mine. They'll have me out of town for a good bit of the day. So... Uh, if you need me, just call the office or call my cell phone or, or something like that. Um, there are a couple of important announcements in the bulletin. There, there are two I would point out and ask that you would uh, kind of read through slowly. One is um, concerning uh, Sunday morning Sunday school teachers. I ask that you would kind of read through that one carefully. And also just a reminder that there's a carnival today at the school put on by Bethesda later on this afternoon. So uh, to read that one as well, too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gorgeous day that is outside. Thank you for your scripture that is true and applicable to life and wonderful and relevant and um, just a blessing to us. God, may this morning be delightful and worshipful in your eyes. We love you, Lord. Amen. First John 4 says, Dear friends, we should love each other because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has become God's child and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know, know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love to us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we could have life through him. 
this is what real love is. It is not our love for God. It is God's love for us. He sent his son to die in our place to take away our sins. We love because God first loved us. And we're going to talk about what Luke said, Song of Solomon, and love. And the only way that we can truly love is through God's love. He's the only one that gives us the capacity to love whoever is in our life, um, any relationship, and even love people who are hard to love. And thankfully, God's love dwells in other people so they can love us, too, because sometimes we're hard to love, too. So um, we're going to just really worship the Lord and sing about his love and just give him thanks and ask him to fill us with more of his love. So let's stand together.
Let's have a time of prayer together. Heavenly Father, this morning we want to take a few moments and just quietly in our hearts, Lord, we want to offer you praise and worship because of who you are. And Lord, we want to give you thanks for all the amazing blessings that you have given us and and all the blessings that are in our life. And Lord, we invite you to speak to us. We invite you into our hearts. Is there anything that you would say to us this morning? Lord, this morning we pray for our family, for our spouses and for our kids. family, for our friends. Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for our nation. for the world that we are a part of. Lord, this morning I ask that you would open all of our eyes to Scripture as we, as we work through Scripture and that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, what, what is it that, that you would have each one of us learn um, from, from today's message? Um, we love you, Lord. Ushers, you may come forward.
the peace of our family. You know, we all have different stories of attraction. Um, maybe, maybe your favorite story is the one of your spouse. Maybe not. I'm not sure. I guess we don't have to bring that up this morning. Uh, some of you remember the moment, you know, when, when you saw them. Kind of, there was one story in college. A group of girls are, are sitting together, and a guy on a bicycle is going by, and, uh, and he sees one of the girls and just starts to s- stare at her. He's just kind of awestruck by her, not paying attention at all hits a guardrail and just goes just head over tails, right? And of course, they're now married. And, um, and some of you, maybe you don't remember the, you know, the first moment where you saw them, but you might remember that moment, though, where you, kind of where you first had the thought of, hey, hey, this could work. Hey, th- th- this is a good idea. We, yeah, I, l- I like this idea. And... Uh, so it's kind of different for, for all of us. My mother, bless her heart, um, for years used to joke and tell me that I couldn't date till I was 35. You know, she'd be like, oh, you can't date till you're 35. Ha, 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 ha. And then one day, and, and then after a while the joke stopped. And then one day, probably in like my mid to late 20s, she just kind of leans over and she goes, you know I was joking, right? <laughs> yeah, mom, I'm working on it. All right, like just back off, okay? <laughs> you know? Like we went back when I was single, the, the three of us, we all did a cruise together, you know, and my mom's like, there's some nice girls on this boat. I'm like, no, mom, like, I'm not going to do this with my parents on a boat. Like, <laughs> let's just enjoy our time together. The whole, the whole dating landscape is, is complex, right? And, and, and there are some pretty awesome benefits to, to being single. I don't know if you, you remember that, but I mean, you just, you have a freedom and a mobility that is, that is second to none, and uh, and I remember being single, like I love being single, but according to all my married friends, I was miserable, and I just didn't know it, and I was like, but I love my life, I can, you know, you can do crazy things, like I'm going to go to Turkey for two weeks, that sounds like fun, you know, and you're just up and gone, but, but one of the annoying questions, or one of the annoying parts of being single is that you do wonder, like, who am I going to marry, have I met him yet, have I not met him yet? And what are they going to be like? And how long is this going to take? You know, and, and, and dating is awesome, but it can also be incredibly painful. And, and, you know, when you're falling in love, just all logical thought goes out the window completely. Uh, and it's tricky. And, and it's full of landmines. And, and if we truly believe that who you marry is the second biggest decision of your life, first biggest decision being are you going to follow Jesus Christ, I mean, do, do we really believe that, that Scripture has nothing for us on how to handle that process? I mean, given the magnitude of this question, of this decision, is there really nothing in there? Um, I believe there is. Song of Solomon is a fantastic book on attraction, dating, marriage, romance, conflict, com- commitment. And, and this book is so far above you and romance, and intimacy, and, and passion, I mean, it will shame you. Like, you will just think you are an iceberg after this, right? We, we read Romans, and we see God's definition of salvation and righteousness, and we say, oh, I have so far to go. You know, we, we read Galatians, and we see God's definition of unity, and we say, oh, I have so far to go. We read Ephesians, and we see God's definition of identity in Christ, and, and, and living out a life of Christ, and we say, oh, I have so far to go. We're going to read through Song of Solomon, and, and you're going to think, oh, I have so far to go, all right? This is, this is a great book. 
And also I would encourage that, that everyone needs this book. Even if you are single and you're thinking this really doesn't apply to me, even if it doesn't feel like it immediately applies to you, one, I, I would say that there is kind of the potential for a second layer where it is a metaphor between Christ and the church. At times it's a bit of a stretch, but a lot of smart people advocate for that. But the other thing is that you might need this book to, to, to give a friend wise counsel and wisdom and discipleship. As they're, you know, talking about this, you know, amazing man or this amazing woman or, or their struggles for you to be able to say, hey, I know a book that talks about that. Let me just, you know, let's let's work through this. So so some great stuff. We're going to go through this book in sections. And um, today we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. We are going to go all the way to chapter 2, verse 7. I believe that, that the first section of this book does cover attraction, and it ends with a phrase, I adjure you, or daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you will not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. We'll explain that later on. But the next section then, I believe, is a dating section. It ends with the same phrase. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, do not awaken love until so it pleases. And then we're going to see it move into marriage and, 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 um, and their honeymoon. So we're covering a lot of stuff today. So let's get started. She speaks. The bride speaks first. She speaks last. She speaks most often. And we begin with this. The, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. The first line, Song of Songs, which is Solomon, that simply tells us that, that this was Solomon's work and that he considered this his best work. The man wrote over 3,000 proverbs. He wrote over 1,000 songs. And he says, this is the most brilliant thing I have ever put to paper. Or papyrus, I guess, technically, or clay. I'm not sure how it works out, but anyways, best thing I ever wrote down. She begins with this phrase, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And, and so she, she speaks here, and she begins with this, this passionate desire, and, and it really kind of serves as amazing bookends. She begins with, with this passionate plea of, of let me kiss me, you know, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, and she ends with this request that, that her husband be like a young stag on the mountains of spice. And we'll explain that later. But it just it serves as kind of this, this romantic, uh, passionate bookend. She says, your love is better than wine. So, so her lover is more pleasing and intoxicating with wine. And then she says, your anointing oils are fragrant. A couple, couple directions we could go with this. One is that this could be literal. Remember, they didn't shower back then, or very rarely. So if you wanted to smell good, you had kind of anointing oils and, and fragrances. So this could be a literal reference that, that, that he was just, he was, he smelled nice. Like he was just good at grooming. Like he just, he took care of himself, you know? Like the man took a shower on a regular basis, you know, that kind of thing. It could also be connected to the next line. And I love this next line. She says, your name is oil poured out. Helen Keller, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, Adolf Hitler, Billy Graham. When I say those names, immediately you think of an individual and you think of the attributes of that individual. When I say Helen Keller, you think, you know, blind and deaf, but amazing life. When I, think of, when I say Napoleon, you, you think of someone who, who conquered nations. 
When, when I say Adolf Hitler, you think of kind of this cruel tyrant person. You think of the Holocaust. When I say Billy Graham, you think of an evangelist. She says your, your name is, she, it's like saying your character. It's like oil poured out. So this would be like a, a scented oil, right? Uh, when, when you pour it out, everyone in the room enjoys it. Now, some of you are into these essential oils, and so you take these oils and you put them in this little diffuser, and, and it heats up the oil, and the smell or that fragrance of that oil just fills the entire room. And everyone who comes into that room encounters the, the scent of that oil, and it's pleasing, and it's wonderful, and it's good. This is a deep, deep character reference that she starts with. Who this man is, his character, his virtues, his attitude, his values, they are pleasing to those around him. When people mention his name, those who hear it, they nod and they think, yeah, that, that's a good man. That, that's a quality guy. You know, we, we like that man. Imagine if your spouse said, you know, your name is, is sweetness. Right? I mean, they're not just talking about, you know, Bob. I just love the name Bob, you know. They're talking about who you are. Your name is sweetness. Your name is pure gold. You know, you, your name is Starbucks aroma. Uh, your name is a clean house. Like, you know, whatever it is that, that's pleasing. In the culture and in the language of the Hebrews, a name is more than, than, than just the sounds. It includes their nature. It includes their reputation. She says his name is like perfume poured out that is pleasing to all who, who smell or hear it. The thing that attracted this woman to this man was his character. This is the very first thing she says about this man. That he is a man of deep character. I believe that any good relationship, that the beginning of any good relationship starts with the character of a man. And that if the character of the man is not rock solid or if he fails, you know, to, to grow and get better, that it will always be a tumultuous relationships. Ladies, you do not marry a man because of who you think he could become. You marry a man because of who he is. So it starts with the man's character. She continues to speak on his character. She says, therefore, virgins love you. This man was adored and respected by all of her girlfriends. All right. The, the posse approved of, of this man. Okay. Uh, she says, all my friends adore you. They, they think you are wonderful. Singles, when you are in the early stages, you know, you're of, of, of relationship, you're not thinking clearly. Been there, done that. Make sure you get an outside opinion from family, from friends, from people who love Jesus, who say thumbs up, thumbs down. Find the honest ones who will talk to you, all right? Um, and, if, and if it's not good, you just trust them and you get out of the relationship. There, uh, she says, therefore, the virgins love you. Ladies, have you ever looked at your husband and thought any woman would consider it a privilege to be your wife, but I got to? She is reflecting on how privileged she is to love this man that everybody loves. She says, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. For, for those who interpret, you know, Song of Solomon literally, as you should, there's kind of two options on the first part of this book. The first part is the chapters 1, 2, and 3 
are, they're, they're married throughout the entire time. Um, we see the, the, the wedding ceremony in chapters 3. So it's kind of, so, you know, we wonder kind of what's going on. The second option is that in chapters 1, 2, and 3, they're, they're dating. They're reflecting back. They're already married, but, but they're, da- they're reflecting back on kind of their, their dating experience. Uh, for me, I'm about an 80-20 split on this. I'm about 80% convinced that they are reflecting on their, uh, on their time at, you know, through, through attraction and through dating. And I'm about 20% convinced that they were just married solid throughout the whole thing. And it really does lead you to different interpretations, right? Remember, this whole thing is encased in, in Hebrew poetry and, and cultural compliments. And, and so you kind of get different conclusions based on your starting point. Um, so anyway, so when I read that line, I think she's just in, in, in theater, you have something called the fourth wall, right? So, um, when you're on stage, you kind of have the three walls and most of the time in theater, you never break the fourth wall, which is the audience. And when you do, it's called like an aside or a soliloquy where you turn and you address the audience. And so I, I think that might be kind of what's going on here you know, where she's, uh, turning and addressing the audience. So anyways, that's, um, I believe that they're married and that they're reflecting back on this time. The other thing that makes this a little bit complicated as we go through, and actually this will come up later again, is that Hebrew verbs do not have a tense. Like in English, you have past tense, present tense, future tense. They don't have that in Hebrew. So if this is past, present, or future, it is determined entirely by the context of what's being said. So the grammar doesn't give us a real definitive past, present, future. We have to just kind of look at the setting and go, I think this was past. I think this was present. I think this is future. So um, can get a little bit tricky. The next, the next line, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will exalt your love more than ro- wine. Uh, rightly do they love you. Um, use of the word we suggests that this is a chorus. Remember, we have four known characters in this book. Uh, we have the man, uh, Solomon. He is the groom. He is called the lover. So he initiates love. Uh, we have the, the woman, the bride. She is called the beloved. So she is the recipient of his love. Later on, she's called the Shulamite, which could be a play on word because it also means Mrs. Solomon, or it could be referencing the part of the, the region where she's from, and, or maybe both. And so we have some options there. We have the brothers. They get to say a few lines at the end. And then we repeatedly have this chorus, that this group of friends. It uh, kind of seems like it's more associated with, with the woman. Uh, we're not sure. But use of the word suggests that, that this is the friends, and they are saying, this is a good relationship. We approve of this relationship. She continues to speak. Verse 5. We still have not heard from Solomon. And um, she speaks. Now, what do you, I'll just read this to you. All right. Uh, verse 5, uh, go to the end of 7. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flocks? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of her companions? So for the first time, the woman speaks about herself. And what do you suppose is the very first thing this woman says about herself? 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good looking, but there's just that one thing that if I could change that, boy, I just feel so much better. Right? Helps us know that it's real here. I am very dark but lovely. You know, in many cultures, uh, in, in, including the, the, the Hebrew culture, the highest place of beauty is the skin. And, and so she is saying that she's lovely, right? Whatever that means. She has a nice face or a nice personality or a nice form or something like that. But she's insecure about her skin. She, she's very uh, self-conscious of that. It's dark. She had to be outside. Her, her, her skin got, got darkened. Not only is this a beauty thing, this is an economic thing, all right? A wealthy woman would be able to stay inside, out of the sun, you know, doesn't have to work as much. She doesn't have to work in the field. She can keep her skin a very light color. But, you know, a, a working class girl would have to be, you know, she's working in the vineyard. She's working with sheep. She's outside. So, so this is a reference on economics as well, too. She compares it to the, the tents of Kedar. Uh, this is a nomadic people group. And so they, you know, their, their tents were just darkened from the elements. Uh, Solon's, Solomon's uh, uh, curtains or tapestries in the palace, they were likely made from black wool. And, I mean, they're in the palace. I mean, obviously they're nice. You don't hang ugly stuff in the palace. But they were probably made from dark wool. And so she, she's doing this comparison. But listen to why she has dark skin. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So once again, she says that, you know, she really wasn't able to, to kind of maintain her skin or her body the way that she would like. My own vineyard I have not kept. And we do see later on that the brothers were pretty good guys, right? They, they were looking out for her. Um, but they made her keeper of, of, of the vineyard. Her brothers, the, the kind of the authority figure in her life, remember, dad is not mentioned. But the brothers made her go out and work. They made her work in the fields. And so, so first of all, it tells us that this girl is submissive to, to the authority figure in his, her life. Folks, I weep for the people who have never learned to be submissive to the authority figures in their life. I mean, men or women, right? I mean, we all have all kinds of authority figures. But the people who never figure that out, they just have difficult, difficult lives. Maybe they're fun to date for a week or two, but in the long run, they're dangerous friends. I weep for the people who have never learned submission to, a, to the authority in their life. But secondly, it tells us that she is a hard worker. Um, later on, we see that she also tends sheep, all right? So, you know, she had two different summer jobs. You know, she's working in the vineyard. She's tending to sheep. You know, for, for, for the single men, I, I beg of you, marry a hardworking woman. Uh, your life will be so richly blessed because of that. Each culture has, um, has proverbs, right? Little kind of sayings, little tidbits of wisdom. In Botswana, they, they, they have this proverb that says, um, the fat for a child is to be sent. Okay, so what does that mean? The, um, in, in, in that culture, when you eat a piece of meat, the, the fat on the meat is actually the delicacy. It's considered the, the most flavorable, most enjoyable part of the meat. Which, I mean, when, when you barbecue, when you grill, the fat adds a lot of flavor and if you know how to do it right. And so they're saying that the choicest piece, that, you know, the candy for a child is to be sent. To be sent means that they're, 
you know, that they're instructed, that they're given a chore, that, that, that they're given a task, that, that they're given responsibility. Th- this proverb from Botswana tells us that one of the best things for a child is to give them chores, to, to give them responsibilities. For this woman, her brothers made her work in the fields. And it created a hardworking character that blessed her and blessed those around her. Women of the Bible, Rachel, shepherdess. Rebecca went into the well and got water for the camels. We, we see her work ethic there. Uh, Zipporah, the wife of Moses, she was a shepherdess. Proverbs 31 woman. We never find out what she looked like, but we know that her arms were strong. This woman had to work hard. She had to hustle. Do not enter into a serious dating relationship uh, until you've had a chance to see, does this person know how to work hard? I married a hardworking woman, and it has been just one of the richest blessings uh, in our life. So she wants to have a date with this man. She wants to meet up with him, and so she tells him, Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flock of your companions? To veil herself would have been like one of the prostitutes visiting the workplace. And so she says, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not a prostitute. I don't even want to look like a prostitute. Where do you pasture your flock at noon? At high noon when the sun is out where people cannot accuse us of anything? That's where I want to meet you. Um, where there, there can be no suspicion of bad behavior. This is a chaste woman who will not give herself sexually to this man until they are married. Her desires for a pure, public, high noon, out in the open dating relationship. They're not headed over to the friend's house like play Twister in the basement, just the two of them. We're doing this at high noon. Where do you pasture your flock at noon? Gals, is it okay for a godly woman to see a godly guy and find out what he's up to and, you know, just maybe kind of arrange things so they just so happen to run into each other? Yeah, absolutely. And guys are dumb and slow, so you're going to have to do it more than once. Okay? Like probably a lot of times. After Joanne and I both graduated college, I'm going to tell a personal story here. God bless my wife. She's been more terrified about this sermon series than any other. Um, we graduated college. We separated. Didn't see each other for seven years. She was all over the world. I had moved up to Canada. So she moves back to Wichita. I'm in town for a couple weeks, kind of in the Kansas, Oklahoma area. And we reconnect after seven years. Go out for coffee. Have a great time. Uh, She tells me their church is hosting a barn dance. So I skip out on a work fundraising event and go to a barn dance and have a great time. Well, on one of the last nights that I was in, I think it was like the last night, or or coming up, you know, there was kind of one more evening before I was in town. You know, so Joanne calls me. She says, hey, I'm in, I have a bunch of friends coming over. We're having a party, you know, Thursday night or whatever it was. You know, we're just, just kind of a get-together at my place. Do you want to come join us? Sure, that sounds like fun. Well, she hangs up the phone and then proceeds to call all her friends and organize the fastest party ever. She had nothing planned, all right? There was nothing planned for that night. So she, she had to scramble, and she put together a pretty good party, so... I was pretty well hooked by then. Um, 
the uh, uh, verse 8, um, it's, you, your, your Bible has headings on, on who speaks where, he or she. Um, mine says that, that the man speaks in that uh, phrase. A lot of them, though, uh, think that it's the chorus. Who speaks it, if you do not know, beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. So we think it's the chorus just kind of um, telling her where to meet up with him. And we also see that, that she also shepherds. Um, next, he speaks. This is the first time the man we, that we know for certain the man speaks. The first confirmed words out of this man's mouth. I compare you, my love, to a mare. Lord, help us. I compare you to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your necks with strings of jewels. So the first thing that he gets to say about her, and he compares her to her horse. All right? So obviously there's some cultural stuff that we need to look at. Solomon was a lover of horses. So he knew horses really well. All right? This is not kind of some random thing that he kind of read out of a bubblegum wrapper. Like, this was his area of, of expertise. Chariots, it was preferred that chariots were pulled by, by the male horses, by, by stallions or, you know, or, or geldings. So the common chariot w- would have had stallions pulling the chariot, right, for battle. But this was Pharaoh's chariot. Pharaoh's chariot would have been out in front of all the other chariots, especially like on, on, a, on a parade or, or coming through town. Pharaoh's chariot is out in front. And for, chariots, for Pharaoh's chariot, not only did they cho- choose a mare, but they chose the, the, the most important you know, I mean, or his chariot was the most important, regal, you know, highly decorated chariot out in front of everyone. And it was pulled by a mare, and they found the most beautiful, graceful, elegant mare that they could find. And so he is saying that in all the country, he considers her to be the most beautiful, eye-catching, visually stunning thing he has ever seen. He says in all the land, you are the most amazing. He says your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, or uh, some might say earrings, your, your neck with strings of jewels. She has jewelry on. It enhances her beauty. Um, the next phrase, uh, perhaps the chorus, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. Um, not really sure the significance of that. Couldn't find much on that. She talks again, and she says, While the king was on his couch, uh, some might translate it table, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved to me is a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. It was a custom of that day that, that women would wear a, a small sachet of myrrh around their neck at night while they slept. Uh, remember that, that this is before showers, right? So, so they would wear this, and that they would wear this at night. But then the the scent of that would linger with them all throughout the day, right? So, so she has this perfume, and it's this wonderful scent, and all night long it is close to her heart, right? She's saying all night long you you are close to my heart, and during the day, you know, she she takes it off, but but throughout the day, the smell of that perfume lingers. And it creates this, you know, creates around her this pleasing aroma. 
for her, this man is something sweet and wonderful and close to her heart. And all throughout the day, because of this man, she has this aroma that adds to her beauty. Her fragrance is this man. She carries on, my beloved is a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi is this remote, uh, surreal, romantic oasis. Just Google and Getty sometime. It, I mean, it's still there today. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, all around it, it's just, just rock, no vegetation, just rock. But then in the limestone, there is just this spring, and there's a lot of water coming out of the spring, and it creates this waterfall. And then this waterfall comes down and it collects into a pool before it eventually kind of works its way all, all the way down to the ocean. And so this place is just this oasis, and it's full of vegetation and, and life. But yet at the same time, it, it, it's hidden, it's private, it's remote, it's lush, it's beautiful, it's, it's safe. So for her, this man was, was like this oasis, right? This, this place of refreshment in a land filled with, of desert and just lifeless rocks. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. For the first time, he directly compliments her physical beauty, and he compliments her eyes. He says, your eyes are doves. She says, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. The rafters are pine. They're out in a meadow. They're in the woods. She's not actually physically describing their house. Um, some might say, you know, our couch is green or, or are verdant. They're, they're laying in the grass. You know, they, they, they're, they're in a city park. Uh, they're in the woods. The, the, the beams are cedar. The rafters are pine. They're, they're in the shade of these trees outside. You know, and, and once again, this speaks of kind of the high-profile nature of, of their dating relationship and, and meeting in a, uh, like, like in a park or, or out in the woods. In the next verses, as we read through this, I want you to see how she is affected by their relationship. This relationship is so good, you will see how it affects her mind, you will see how it affects her heart, and you will see how it affects her body. She starts with, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. This is the same woman who through just a few verses ago was saying, don't look at me. I'm dark. The, the sun has darkened my skin. I'm not all that pleasant to look at. The same woman now describes herself as a rose of Sharon or a lily of the valley. She sees herself as beautiful, as fragrant, as unique and cherished. Gentlemen, he has affected her mind. Her perception of herself grows and changes as she mirrors her worth in his eyes. Gentlemen, your wife will find affirmation somewhere. And if it's not with you, then, then it might be through the kids. It might be through work. It might be through volunteering. Or worst case scenario, it will be with another man. A lot of adultery does not begin with lust. A lot of adultery begins with the vacuum. Where there is no love, there is no respect, there is no communication, there, there is no affection, there is no romance or intimacy. A vacuum or a void is created, and it creates a space for the enemy to come into and do his work. 
do not make your spouse vulnerable by creating a vacuum in their life. You make sure that they are continually topped up with love, affirmation, intimacy, non-sexual touch, whatever it is, all right? Gentlemen, your wife will mirror herself, her worth from your eyes. So you make sure that she sees herself as a rose of Sharon or a lily of the valley. He speaks again. He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Everyone else is a thorn to him. All the other women are ugly to him. She is the rose. Everyone else is a thorn. Some nasty, prickly, unpleasant plant, right? Your wife is your standard of beauty. So if she's blonde, you're into blonde. If she's a redhead, you're into redhead. If she's skinny, you love skinny. If she's not skinny, skinny is for wimps, right? Whatever she is, that's your perfect 10. And I get that we don't always might necessarily want to feel that way. But as Christian men, we choose to do that. We choose to feel that way. We choose that. Your wife is your standard of beauty. She speaks again, an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadows, his fruit was sweet to my taste. Forests don't usually have apple trees. She kind of does the same compliment in, in reverse, right? He says, you know, thrambles, you know, or, or, you know, thorns, but, but you're the rose. She says, in the forest, you're the apple tree. All right. Everyone else is prickly and annoying and pine trees and unpleasant. But this man provides shade and shelter and nourishment. The fruit of his life is pleasant and nourishing to others. Ephesians 5, New Testament, right, talks about husbands nourishing their wives. Your fruit, metaphorically, your fruit is the product of who you are. Your character, your actions, your behavior, your, your values. And you will produce fruit. It's simply a matter of whether or not it's good fruit or bad fruit. Even the Holy Spirit, the, you know, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all kinds of things. She continues to speak. He brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me was love. Um. Some translate it, he brought me into the, into the house of wine. This, this is a, a celebration place. This is a festive place. His banner over me was love. In those days, you know, when you would line up for battle, they'd have these great big banners. And so you knew that, that that's where your company was. And you would come to your company. And, it, and so he's really kind of making this bold proclamation for all to see that this is his girl and he loves her. To put a banner over her is to put up something that anyone and everyone can see. Have you ever seen a man in public and, and, and he behaved in such a way that you thought this man loves his wife? Every, everyone knows that this man loves his wife, loves, loves his girl. So the effect on her mind is that she now sees herself as beautiful. The effect on her heart is that she feels nourished and sheltered and protected and loved. Now you see how she, her body responds. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. 
I am sick with love. If you were a Hebrew person, you just chuckled because that was kind of funny. Raisin cakes did, I mean, it was a food, and sometimes they just ate it. However, it's often considered an aphrodisiac. Uh, Her desire, her physical desire is rising toward this man. She desires intimate encounters with this man. She is sick with love. She needs to be refreshed with apples. She wants raisin cakes. All right? Raisin cakes were made with raisins, obviously, but raisins are filled with seeds. And so kind of the superstition of the day was that that raisins, you know, increased your your, your fertility or, or, or arousal. In 2 Samuel 6.16, you know, David has brought back the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David. He's rejoicing. They are expecting that God is going to bless their nation because they have the Ark of the Covenant. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. He is expecting blessing for the nation of Israel. Scriptures continue, then each to the people departed, each to his own house, where they ate their raisin cakes. This is a deeply erotic verse. So is the next line. His left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. Almost all the commentaries I read said that this was some kind of sexual connotation. You can almost... Uh, Rather than say embrace me, you could say fondle me. Her desire is for the most intimate of marital acts. She wants him because he is gentle with her and she feels like a woman is meant to feel. She wants to give herself to this man. And that's sexual feelings are good. That's how God created it. It's okay. One of the things, though, on this verse, remember I talked about verb tense. Um. Is, is this past tense, present tense, or future tense? We don't know from the verbs. We only know from the context. Is it past, present, or future? Based on the context of this, I, I don't believe that this is present tense. I believe that this is a desire for future tense. I don't think she's saying this is what's happening. I, I think she is saying, and several commentaries agree with me, that, that this is what her desire is. So you could almost translate this as, I really want... May it be that his left hand is under my head and that his right hand embraces me. She is telling us, she is telling him what she desperately wants in a very intimate way. Now the next verse is powerful. And this is, this kind of ends the the first section. And it's curious to, to, I wonder who said it, because we really don't have clarity on who says it. But the next verse, chapter 2, verse 7 I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It could be that she is just continuing to speaking and she's shouting out a warning to her friends. As I study, though, kind of the responsibilities of men and of husbands in Scripture, I think you can make a really strong case, probably even a winning case, that this is actually the, the man speaking this phrase. She is saying, my desire for you is really, really high right now, and this is what I really, really want. And the husband speaks up and says, not yet. We don't do this now. We're going to wait. He doesn't scold her. He's just saying, 
we're going to wait. To say that I adjure, that is to make someone swear an oath, to swear by God. So he or she or whoever is warning their friends, they're hollowing out a warning to their friends, swear to us that in your, that in your personal life you will not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. These are strong feelings. These can be overpowering feelings. Do not mess with this until the time is right. They are in the midst of this dating relationship and they are hollering out a warning to their friends. This is powerful, powerful stuff. And, and I do believe that, that it's the husband who, who is saying, we're just, we're, we're going to wait. Sex is not an interview for dating or for relationships or, or anything. Sex is the follow-through. It is the result. It is not the foundation. Even if you have some kind of remarkable, amazing sex life where just like an hour a day is dedicated to the act of happiness, that's only 4% of your day, all right? You cannot build a good relationship off sex alone. Sex is the follow-through, not the foundation. This first section ends with, it, with this. I adjure you, O daughters. The next section ends with this. I adjure you that you do not stir up or awaken love un- until it pleases. Later on, on their honeymoon, we will see them say, Awake. When it comes to being attracted to someone, you always start with character. The first part of this be- book begins with his character. What is his character? I believe any good relationship starts with his character. Then it starts to her character. And they talk about her character. They complement each other for a while. And then you see the, tra- the how this affects her. How it affects her mind. How she changes her perception of herself. You see how it affects her heart. How she feels nourished, nourished and protected and taken care of. You see how he proclaims to people that, that, that his love is for her and you see her responding physically growing her in her desires for this man and you see him being showing strength or at least one of them showing strength and saying we're not going to do this now we wait the i know that for many of you you are well past being single right you you discount marriage by the decade okay this book does an interesting thing at the end of the book it kind of does this thing where it ties it back to the beginning I don't believe this to be a linear progression where we do this and then we never do it again. We do this and we never do it again. We do this and we just kind of keep moving. I actually believe it to be more circular. Meaning that 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 for all of us, even if you've been married decades upon decades, that you are attracted to the character. That you complement one another. That you find nourishment in one another. That you proclaim everyone to your, your love for one another. And as a result, you have a positive effect on your spouse's mind, on their heart, and on their body. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for Scripture. Thank you for its truth, and thank you for its relevance. Lord, thank you that a, that, 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 that a poem that was written 3,000 years ago still has such incredible reference today. And Lord, we believe that because it was written to you and you, it was written by you and you are always relevant. And Lord, when, when this was written, you understood our culture today. You understood the environment in which we live in. 
and you embedded in this book truths for us that minister to us here and today and give us guidance and wisdom, and not just for the single, but even for the married. Lord, I pray that as we go throughout our week, that this book would continually be in our mind and, and you would be teaching us what it means to be in a healthy, thriving, God-honoring relationship. We love you, Lord. Amen. stand as we respond um, our love for Jesus affects every part of our relationship with other people and may we be known as a church and a people who um, love, who love him and who love others and who love well in our relationships and in our marriages and um, whatever relationship it is that we're in so we just uh, do this as a declaration that we want to be a people that Jesus is all to us. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, do not break Thank you.
Lord Jesus, merciful God, we have a lack of love. I have a lack of love. Teach us to love the way that you intended. Thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. God, may you take this worship and take us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Let the glory.